Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. This episode is the audio version of a live online session from JLF Colorado 2020. The Battle of Belonging. Shashi Tharoor in conversation with Pragya Tiwari. at uh, JLF in Jaipur in the United Kingdom and virtually at the JLF Brave New World. This is my first time ever at JLF Colorado and I'm happy to be here. And I couldn't have asked for a better interlocutor than Dr. Kadur because it's always a sheer delight to listen to him, not to mention the highly relevant topic of our conversation, which is his new book on uh, nationhood, on nationalism, on patriotism and on a sense of belonging. While largely it is in the Indian context, a lot of it also applies to many other parts of the world, including the United States of America. So I would first like to congratulate you, Dr. Tharoor. I mean this from the bottom of my heart for being such a prolific and such a relevant, important writer and for addressing this sort of churn of our times and putting it in historical context. Because the word, as you write, nationalism, might as well have very deep linguistic roots going way, way back. But in common usage, it only appears around 1844. So perhaps we could quickly start with you giving us a sense of the origin of both the term nationalism and the sentiment of nationalism. Right. Well, in fact, uh, the word nation has existed in various European languages going back to the Romans, I mean, they had Nazio, which actually meant uh, initially litter, like a cat's, you know, little kittens were all were all Nazio. So it was a disparaging reference to the various uh, people uh, who were sort of foreign to Rome, who flocked to this big imperial city and, and lived there, and they were treated in many ways as subhumans. It wasn't a very complimentary term. But after all, because Nazio comes from uh, a root Nasere, which means I'm born, it kind of uh, evolved into something that links people together by birth. And um, um, even then, it wasn't terribly used very much because, you see, most people were linked in terms of political organization to individual rulers, a baron, a king, an emperor. And, and therefore, the notion of nation didn't exist. It was more a question of being a subject, a subject to somebody else who was ruling you. Um, in the mid 19th century, when the world was really dominated by empires, that's when within many of these empires, feelings arose demanding the recognition of separate identities. And those identities were recognized by the people themselves as nations. They were often identities linked to immutable common characteristics. Sometimes it was territory. All of us in this particular area, we're different from those guys who are ruling us from far away. Sometimes it was cultural. Sometimes it was linguistic. All of us who speak one particular language, we are a nation and those people ruling us speak another language. Sometimes it was religious. Um, let's say when the, the Turks, the Ottoman Turks were ruling Greece, 
uh, there was a strong religious element to, to the Greek people saying we want to be independent. So all of these elements came in and broadly speaking, I described them all linguistic, cultural, territorial, religious, and so on, as forms of ethnic nationalism, that is ethnic nationhood, um, which relates to your body, to your birth, to your personal identity, is what most of this was all about. Um, and at the same time, when we speak of, of ethnic nationalism, it's not just ethnicity, because uh, it then nationhood translates into loyalty to a polity, a politically distinct entity. It often requires membership in an organized community, um, a, a, a mass. Uh, often, in fact, nationalist movements, especially when they were seeking independence, also required fealty to a formalized ideology. Um, then um, uh, it manifested itself in certain signs and forms, saluting a flag, singing an anthem, uh, swearing loyalty to a state, taking on its citizenship. But these are all nonetheless, for the longest time, qualities linked to the accidental circumstance of birth. Whereas what's happened in the 21st century, though I would argue in the American example, and we're talking today in America or for Americans, uh, it even goes back into, I would say, the late 19th century to America, you have an alternative idea of nationalism, which is called civic nationalism. And that's a nationalism not of blood, not of uh, birth, not of identity, but a nationalism of institutions and constitutions, rather than the identities you were born into. And so a civic nationalist um, would essentially say that ethnicity or its trappings are irrelevant to his sense of allegiance to his country. So if, if you tomorrow, Pragya, migrated to America, uh, you weren't born there, you don't belong to the majority faith Christian, you didn't have an education in America, none of that would matter. The moment you migrated, legally became a citizen, you were entitled to participate in all the institutions all the liberal constitutionalist trappings of the American state and the democratic practices that made you fulfill your sense of nationalism and national commitment. Now, in America today, that notion is very much challenged by many of the supporters of President Trump who see America as having certain ethnic characteristics and want to keep immigrants who don't share those characteristics out. And you have a very similar battle going on in India between, in fact, those who would argue that um, India is really a nation of the Hindu people and those who would argue that our constitution has created a nation that is open to membership by everybody, a civic nationalist state. Uh, and so my book starts off with a discussion of the theory, concept and evolution of nationalism rather as you and I just have done, but a greater length uh, at the worldwide level and then sees what kind of nationalism was actually um, instituted in India by our nationalist struggle and by the constitution of India at the founding of the Indian Republic, and then the stresses and strains it is undergoing with the rise of an alternative idea of Indian nationalism, the Hindutva idea. And that's what the book essentially then focuses on, is on Hindutva versus, uh, if you like, uh, liberal constitutionalism, uh, civic nationalism versus ethno-religio-linguistic nationalism of the Hindutva variety, Hindi, Hindu, Hindustan, and finally ends with a passionate plea, as it were, for safeguarding civic nationalism. So that's the broad arc through which I study nationalism in the battle of belonging. 
so very quickly, I, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in there. And um, sure. I would uh, love to talk a little bit more in detail about how you sort of construct the argument vis-a-vis -vis India. And I would also like to talk about how the elections and competing ideas played out in the American elections. But before that, just two very quick things that you touched upon earlier. Before the idea of nationalism, you said people would would feel your loyalty to a king or to a baron, or you know, um, could you just give us a little bit of a sense of, or maybe just a couple of examples from India to to help us understand what sense of belonging looked like in India in ancient and medieval times? I mean, you know, before the idea of nationalism uh, came into being or in 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 the country. Right. Well, I mean, in ancient times, of course you had many of the same phenomena. That is, first of all, you had people who were ruled by monarchs. Um, but I can't say first of all, because it's impossible to generalize about some a place as vast as India. As I pointed out, there were actually a few mini republics. I mean, they weren't republics in the modern sense. They didn't elect a president, but they had a king who was accountable to an assembly. Now, the assembly was constituted with people of certain caste privileges or certain rank and status, and unfortunately, gender as well. Um, uh, your wonderful gender didn't have the same opportunities as the other lot did. But the fact is that that was, again, not typical of the entire Indian uh, subcontinent. So you had some uh, Republicans or more democratic assemblies, some uh, essentially tyrannies, if you like, uh, ruled by uh, very tough and uncompromising monarchs. And then you had uh, uh, rather more loosely held empires, of which the best known uh, uh, for ancient India would be the empire of the Mauryas, first under Chandragupta and later under Ashoka, especially after Ashoka's con conversion to Buddhism. He has almost littered the subcontinent with inscriptions and, and, and announcements, preaching pacifism, tolerance, coexistence, understanding, peace, all the wonderful virtues that you would assist, uh, associate even with modern, modern living in, in, in a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, uh, multi-linguistic state. And so, uh, that was also a form of identification available to you. But I don't think somebody would have said, look, I'm an Indian or, or any equivalent, Bharatiya. Uh, they would have actually probably said, you know, I'm a subject of, uh, of, of this particular empire, the Mauryan Empire, or, or I, I'm a subject of Emperor Ashoka, or whatever. And that would have been a more likely way of relating. And this carries all the way through um, uh, to the Mughal era. Now, the Mughals at their peak were very strong and powerful and controlled even slightly more territory than the Mauryans did. But then don't forget that after a while, the Mughal Empire essentially delegated its authority uh, to regional satraps who may have been appointed from Delhi, but then who acquired a regional identity uh, in the places they ruled. And by the sort of late 17th, early 18th century, uh, these had become very significant players in their own right. And that's when sort of uh, what in India today would be called regional identities also began to arise. So um, the people of Bengal who spoke Bengali and had their own Nawab of Bengal, even if he owed allegiance to the Mughal emperor, and even if he collected their taxes only with the firman from the Mughal emperor, he was still, if you like, their intermediate monarch. And so there was that kind of loyalty, but also a growing sense of ethnicity, language, and so on. I would say that the notion of, uh, of, uh, of these identities never took on nationalist hues as such, because by the mid 19th century, when this whole idea of nationalism was arising, the British had already conquered much of the country. And so there was a political entity called India, rather than separate political entities called Bengal and Punjab and different parts of the country. And therefore, 
when you had to focus your sense of identity and belonging, you had a larger political identity to focus onto. And so what began to arise was truly Indian nationalism rather than uh, uh, sub-nationalisms of, of the different regions of India. Um, and, and it was interesting that it happened because, you know, when you look back at the 1857 revolt, which the British rather disparagingly referred to as the mutiny, um, which they put down with savagery and, 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 and ruthlessness that, I mean, you know, Hitler would have envied. I mean, they slaughtered 100,000 women and children in Delhi alone while putting down the, the, um, the so-called mutiny. But the, the Brits, when they were doing that, they were horrified to see that people from all parts of northern India, British India, uh, Hindus and Muslims alike, and people of different castes, different regions, and often speaking different languages, as well as in some ways having a different ethnic sense of either tribe or caste or language or religion, that they all came together and rallied under the banner of the enfeebled Mughal monarch, Badr Shah Zafar, who was sitting in a throne writing poetry and had absolutely no political clout whatsoever by that time, but they rallied under the banner as a symbol of an all India kingship. So it was very interesting that nationalism in India um, was always at that level and not at a, uh, a reduced level. Um, and, and therefore had the 1857 revolt succeeded, an Indian nation could or would have come into being that itself would have been as diverse as the India we know today, because that was India was being created. Now, it's possible that um, there would have been other kinds of revolts against uh, a Mughal emperor, but that's all counterfactualistic. We don't have to talk about it. But my answer, the final part of my answer to your question is that this kind of nationalism then arose. It targeted British colonial rule, so it was anti-colonial nationalism. And it culminated in 1947, 90 years after that first mutiny, in the emergence not just of one Indian nationalist state, the Indian Union, but sadly of two, because thanks to the British formula of divide and rule, uh, the British had decided that they would gain most and be able to prolong their power most by introducing and accentuating a sense of different identities for religious, religiously defined groups. And that's how uh, the whole notion of Muslim separateness was created by the British, financed and encouraged by the British, and brought up to a point where divide and rule um, created and sustained an increasingly viable separatist movement of some Muslims um, uh, we, who, who, in the last few years, at the end of the Second World War, when the British had pretty much decided they were too exhausted to carry on and they had to pull out, they were able to win enough Muslim support to be able to constitute a separate state. So at that point and at that point alone, India broke up into two states. And the second state, the Muslim state, Pakistan, itself broke up into two states on a different ethnic principle, which was that the Bengalis with their own language and their own culture and their own ethnicity felt they were too different from the West Pakistanis or principally Punjabis and also a few others, you know, Pakhtuns and Sindhis and, uh, and, and Baluchis. And so the uh, Bengalis said, we want to be a different country. Uh, and, um, and so we now have three states out of what used to be British India. It's technically, we could even say four states because Burma was part of British India till uh, 1935. But having said all of that, 
the idea of Indian nationalism that I'm speaking about today would be the nationalism of what we still call India. And that is not the nationalism linked to some ineradicable form of belonging, whether your religion, whether your, your, your language, whether your ethnicity, but rather what some might call a subscription model of belonging. That is that you agree on certain in institutions, certain democratic habits, you write a constitution that everyone, irrespective of their religion, their language, their ethnicity can participate in. And so you, you reject a sort of biological, physical, religious uh, nationalism for a more social, intellectual, uh, institutional nationalism. And that is a nationalism of India that I discuss in my book. You know, one of the greatest things about your book is that you uh, give us a sense of how complex the idea of nationalism is. Because today, when we think of nationalism, we just think of it as a political tool uh, and a political force for, for toxicity and for evil. But you talk about how different kinds of nationalism exist. And, you know, some can be a force for good, some can be a force for evil, etc. And even in just you, 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 give, you take the example of Pakistan and Bangladesh and India and talk about how even within that there is a clash between ethnic uh, nationalism and religious nationalism on one hand and religious and linguistic on the other hand, etc. Now, similarly, like you said, during the Indian freedom movement, which went on for, for over a century, um, different kinds of nationalism were at play. But perhaps it could be, uh, for the sake of simplification, we could talk about two dominant streams of nationalism. Uh, Hindu Mahasabha founded in 1925, but even before that, there was a very strong idea of a Hindu nation. You know, that was maybe the two nation theory was not very well developed until Savarkar comes in. But there was this sort of very rooted in Hindu religious sentiment nationalism that was, that was in Bengal and many different parts of the country. But then, of course, there is another kind of nationalism that comes together, different strands actually come together and culminate in what can today be called the constitutional nationalism of India. Now, what I would like you to talk about maybe is that there are these two forces, they're working for a common cause, sometimes they're not even working for a common cause. As we know that a lot of Hindu nationalists in fact thought that the British going away might not be such a great idea um, uh, for them and for their cause and their purpose. But what were the forces that eventually determined which of these ideas came out triumphant in 1947 and then in 1950 when the constitution was adapted? Okay, well, well let, let me take it back a little bit because you know, when we talked earlier about nationalism and how it evolved, I talked about how these uh, sovereigns, these old monarchs were the ones to whom you had to owe allegiance. But by the late 18th, early 19th century, Increasingly, the intellectual idea became that the people are the locus and nucleus of the country, not the king. The king, of course, in some cases remained the head of state, right, and the embodiment of the nation, but the nation belonged to the people. And, and therefore, the idea, for example, when you went to war, it was not just the king's men fighting against his enemies, but it was the whole people at arms defending their nation, their state, that idea. So then the question becomes, who are the people? And in different countries, different answers were found. So the German people had a very clear sense of who the German people were. And they were white and they were Christian and except for Bavaria, they were Protestant and they were um, uh, German speaking and so on. And very similar ideas for France. There's a wonderful, wonderful lecture by Ernst Renan, the French uh, sociologist or historian who spoke uh, in, 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 in magnificent terms 
1882 on the whole question of what is a nation, where he said that, you know, for us to be French, we not only need to have common historical memories, we also need to have the ability to forget certain things. For example, some of the massacres that took place of minority groups in our country in order to create a unified French nation. If we were to bear those grudges, we'd never be a united country. So we have to select what to forget as well as what to remember. Very clever ideas. Anyway, so coming back to, um, to India now, since that's where you wanted me to answer it. The nationalism, as I said, started off as being nationalism against a common foreign enemy, uh, the colonial oppressor, the British system. Uh, but there were, of course, people um, with different ideas as to who should rule. And increasingly, um, when initially Indian nationalism was the domain of a very privileged Anglophone elite, very often British trained lawyers, who were genteelly fighting for the rights of Englishmen to be given to Indians also, and were writing decorous petitions, which the British usually filed vertically in the waste paper basket. That then had to give way eventually, and Mahatma Gandhi was the catalyst for it in India, to a mass movement of nationalism. <laughs> now, this mass movement raised the question again of who the masses were, who the people were. And when Mahatma Gandhi, for example, started using religious imagery to appeal to the masses and talked about concepts like Ram Rajya, this almost you know, wonderful, <coughs> blissful, positive rule in the country, it began to alarm some of the Muslims who said, well, the Brits were right, you know, if we allow popular rule and independence to come, we are going to be a minority in an overwhelmingly Hindu nation. And that's when a counter argument came that we have to fight for our rights if independence were to come as a separate group within this nation. In fact, when Pakistan was first dreamt up of as an idea, it was dreamt of as an idea to protect Muslim interests within a united India, not as a totally separate country. So it was going to be a sense of a nation that was separate within a common state. And it's interesting that um, it was only as late as 1940, just seven years before independence actually came, that the Muslim League, the party that had been initially set up with British funding and encouragement to be uh, an alternative vehicle of, of ideas for the uh, Muslim community, it was only in 1940 that they passed a resolution asking for a separate state. And even when they did so, a majority of Muslim political opinion was not in favor. The two biggest Muslim provinces, Punjab and Bengal, were both headed by Muslims who were not part of the Muslim League, but were part of uh, coalition governments involving Hindus and others in alliance with them uh, in a multi-religious coalition. So with the Unionist Party in Punjab, which in many ways represented the big peasantry, the big landlords, and so on, Hindu and Muslim alike. And in Bengal, the Krishna Praja party, which was actually uh, peasants and, 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 and smaller farmers united, again, under a Muslim chief minister, but, but definitely there were people who, at that point, who had no sympathy with the Muslim League's demands. In Sindh, you had a man I've written about in the book, who uh, was an active opponent of the Muslim League and actually uh, keynoted a conference of nationalist Indian Muslims who rejected the demand for a separate Muslim state and rejected the demand, uh, the, the analysis of there being two nations within India. 
So you had all these opinions within the Muslim community. There's a big danger when you look back on history in big, broad brush pictures to assume that either Muslims are monolithic or Hindus are monolithic. They were not. There were very different opinions within both groups. But a uh, number of things happened. The British declared war on, on, on the Axis powers in 1939 without consulting the elected governments, whereupon all the Congress governments resigned in protest. Once they had resigned, the British gleefully seized upon the opportunity to offer the positions that the Congress had been elected to, to people who had lost the elections, particularly the Muslim League, and in one or two places to the Hindu Mahasabha in coalition with the Muslim League. So the proponents of the two nation theory on both sides um, had an opportunity to enjoy the loaves and fishes of office, to extend their patronage to people who would be willing to support them. And so the result was that the Muslim League, for example, as I mentioned in my earlier book, Inglorious Empire, uh, grew from barely uh, uh, 2 million members across the country into 20 million by the end of the war, because during the war years, they were in a position to expand their membership by receiving uh, various benefits from the British rulers and dispersing them and en enhancing their strength. In 1945, the war ended. The British were completely knackered. They wanted out. Uh, in 1946, new elections were held, and for the first time, the Muslim League won a majority of the Muslim seats. As I said earlier, Congress and, and these parties that were multi-religious parties had won more Muslim seats than the Muslim League had. And once they'd done that, it was no longer possible to resist their demand for a separate state. And that's how between the election victory of the League in 46 and independence in 47, partition became inevitable. So it really, when you think of this vast country and the huge amount of history it had, to realize that essentially the events of a year, year and a half, all it took to completely redo this country's history, its geography, its shape, and create the two states. Now, Pakistan rapidly, having been created as a Muslim state, became an Islamic one, not initially because Jinnah was not an Islamist, but his successors drove Pakistan in the direction of being an Islamic state. Whereas the founding fathers and mothers of the Indian nationalist movement insisted in keeping India as a state for everybody. There were very, very passionate debates in the Constituent Assembly, which I have read, uh, which were fascinating, including some advocating, well, now that Pakistan has been created as a Muslim state, why do we make India a state for the Hindus? But the majority opinion that prevailed in the Constituent Assembly was that our freedom struggle was a struggle for everybody and the state we create is going to be a state for everybody. And so a constitution was written in which religion would not be a determining factor, where there were no religious acid tests, which was essentially, though they didn't use the word, it was a secular constitution because it essentially opened the benefits of citizenship and the protections of the state to everybody. You have freedom of opinion, you have freedom of religion, you have the freedom of propagation of religion, not just your own worship, but of being able to preach your faith to other people. All that was granted in our constitution, which is not granted in the constitution of Pakistan as an Islamic Republic. And this I think is, is, is one of the big strengths that we really had uh, an India that by design was set up for everybody. And the constitution was meant to work that way. It did for a very long time, but it also created a certain amount of discontent that was exploited notably by the Hindutva movement and its political vehicle, the Bharatiya Janata Party, which argued, look, this is all about appeasing minorities. We are the majority in this country and we are hard done by. We need to change the constitution. We need to change the politics. We need to end appeasement, quote unquote. And we need to come up with 
a, a revised politics that converts our country into a Hindu state, first and foremost, a Hindu Rashtra, a state for, of, and, and by the Hindu people. And everybody else who's not Hindu will either have to acknowledge their essential Hinduness or be here either as a guest or as a, an interloper. And we've seen, once the BJP has come to power, an accelerating demonization, uh, demonization of the Muslim minority in particular, and all minorities in general, um, uh, with a, a peculiar distinction that they like to make between those people whose faiths originated in India, so the Sikhs, the Jains, the Buddhists are okay, and those whose faiths, whose holy lands are elsewhere, which makes Muslims, Jews, Parsis, um, uh, and Christians all suspect. But Jews and Parsis actually are considered relatively model minorities. There's never been any problem with them, and partially because they're so small and in numbers that they can't threaten the dominance of the Hindu majority. It's just that the Hindus who advocate this, and they're not by any means a majority of Indian Hindus, but the 37% who voted for the BJP in the last election, or the 31% who voted for them in the previous election, would be at most the upper ceiling for those who subscribe to Hindutva. And those people say, well, we can suffer those tiny harmless minorities, but if, uh, if, if large numbers of Muslims want the right to get favors from the state, well, we're not going to give it to them. They are indigestible lumps in our national uh, uh, sort of thali, and, and we, we want them out. Now, that kind of talk has uh, been meticulously documented in the writings of various leaders of the Hindutva movement, uh, and, and their message, their slogan of Hindi, Hindu, Hindustan, which combines linguistic, religious, and, and, and territorial nationalism, this idea uh, is something which is lurking very much in the minds, even those who have now been elected to office and officially swear allegiance to the Constitution of India. Uh, their idea of the India that they are ruling is very different from that which has been held and practiced by the uh, practitioners of the Constitution of India for the preceding seven decades. We just have, uh, of course, I have a ton of questions for you, but I've just been told we have only 10 odd minutes to go. So I'm going to combine two questions and put them as one to you. One, of course, takes off from what you were talking about. That once the constitution is enacted, there seems for a while that the anxiety over who we are as people has been put to rest. We get to the task of nation building. We don't, successive generations, stop asking who we really are. We just you know, sort of embrace all the complexities that come with being an Indian. However, that anxiety has, of course, resurfaced with the Hindutva movement gaining political ground. Now, the question I have for you here is that can the character, the inherent character of a nation as a people really begin to change? And if yes, what are the tools that you feel have been most successful in this regard? Whether that's institutional takeovers, whether that's political power, whether that's propaganda or tools of propaganda, or whether it's the narratives themselves that are being constructed, because in the end, nationalism is quite intangible and has to be made up of, made concrete with stories, with narrative, with symbols. Is that more attractive? Because I feel like the answer to this will also have a resonance in the United States of America that's just concluded a highly contentious election, of course, along these lines. 
Right. Well, so let me say that to begin with, my book is full of anecdotes and stories and narratives, including some personal ones. Those are people I've known as well as some, some historical anecdotes, because I believe with you that stories tell these things far better. I'm not writing for scholars and theoreticians. Uh, I'm writing for people who want to think about these issues, and sometimes stories help you think. Um, one of the important things that I, I do in, in responding to your question uh, in the book, uh, Pragya, is that I talk about patriotism and nationalism as rather distinct ideas. Uh, because um, I see patriotism as essentially being about love of your country because it's yours. It's like loving your mother. She doesn't have to be the most perfect human being, the most beautiful, the most accomplished. She's yours. You, you belong to her. She belongs to you. She's your mother. Similarly, patriotism says of their country, uh, if you're a patriot about your country, you basically tend to say, this is mine. I belong to it. It makes me emotional and teary when I see it, when I smell it, when I hear its songs, when I eat its foods, whatever it may be, uh, it's mine. And, it's, and, it, and for me, it belongs, this country belongs to me, I belong to it. And that's, that's patriotism. It is not an aggressive emotion. It's not hostile to anybody else. It's not excessively reliant on the nation, notion of the state. And least of all is it related to the government because uh, you can be a patriot of your country and dislike the government or the president or the prime minister of your country uh, quite easily because uh, you elected or would have voted to elect his alternative or her alternative. Now, <clears throat> that's patriotism. Nationalism, as I said, is often linked to allegiance to a state. And it's very often linked to an aggressiveness that distinguishes your nation as coming first ahead of other nations. Uh, and, and there's a certain uh, um, aggressiveness about nationalism. I've written in the book, for example, the sentence <coughs> that it's true that both patriots and nationalists will be willing to die for their country, right? But whereas the patriot says, I'm willing to die for my country, the nationalist is willing to kill for his state. And that is a, a rather significant distinction. Uh, the French leader Charles de Gaulle had actually said rather memorably that patriotism is when love of your country comes first and nationalism is when hate for other people, people other than your own comes first. So that's part of the part of the distinction. And I would argue that if you look at the US today, you really do have a well entrenched civic nationalism, uh, a civic nationalism that says anybody can be American. Once you're American, all you have to do is pay allegiance to these institutions, to this culture, this voting. It's the melting pot theory of nationalism, the melting pot theory that says, ultimately, it doesn't matter where you come from, what color of skin you have, what language you speak, what God you worship, will stir you into the spot and you come out of it as an American. You owe allegiance to the stars and the stripes. You sing, oh, can you, oh, say, can you see as a national anthem? You vote for the president. You, know, you have allegiance to, uh, to both your state and, 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 and the federal government. That's the idea of American civic nationalism. And now that civic nationalism um, also rested on certain ethnic assumptions that didn't need to be articulated because that ethnicity for the longest time was the dominant ethnicity, namely white Americans. But now that white Americans are down to about 65%, um, with the growth of not only the black, but the Hispanic and now the Asian immigrant population, which collectively um, accounts for about 35% of the American electorate. And then some real questions have been asked. When Mr. Trump campaigned for the first time and make America great again, a lot of the whispered subtext was make America white again. Now that's not possible. In fact, by 2030, even if America were to shut off all immigration we've been now and then, 
the American workforce will be majority non-white. By 2050, the American electorate will be almost half non-white. So you're looking at a country that is in the process of asserting civic nationalism is diluting some of its unstated assumptions of ethnicity, of religion, the Judeo-Christian Judeo cultural and civilizational heritage, and is actually having to embrace other ways of being and belonging. So America is in a different sort of place from India because in ours, the battle is more narrowly defined and is also more advanced because we now have a government in power that's systematically taking steps like the Citizenship Amendment Act and talking about the national, a new nationwide register of citizens that would actually help disenfranchise some people of, of, the, of the minority faith. Uh, whereas America isn't there yet. America has just actually, or appears to have just actually voted to, to defenestrate the most principal advocates of that, uh, of that um, shall we say, more um, uh, exclusionary kind of nationalism. But the fact of the matter is that there is now, there's clearly two opinions in America. And if, if the loser has 49%, uh, how, how, how much can the winner uh, claim to speak, not just for the entire nation, which of course the winner can under the rules of democracy, but how much can the winner claim to speak for a specific idea of the nation? So this is going to be challenging. It's going to be playing itself out in America. I do see America as a, an increasingly divided and polarized country, Pragya where uh, the term the divided states of America is not entirely inappropriate, given uh, how sharp some of the distinctions have been. I mean, the fact that, for example, Mr. Trump won whatever it was, 60 odd plus percentage of white votes, and, um, and Mr. Biden won 80 odd percent of the black votes, um, and, and more than 60% of the brown votes, and so on, you're looking at some very sharp uh, ethnic divides, which um, uh, is not what America is supposed to have been about. And, arguably wasn't about until fairly recently. But that battle of belonging is now taking place in America. And I, I think somebody in America uh, perhaps ought to write a, a different version of my book for America. I, I haven't gone into it in that much more detail. But I'm in an interesting position here because I have twin sons, both of whom were born in Singapore when I was working for the United Nations there, uh, grew up in America from the age of five, and both of whom have lived and worked abroad, one son in London, another one in Hong Kong, both of them returned as permanent residents, but still holding their Indian passports to America, and are now both gainfully employed and settled in America, both married American women. And one of them has now taken American citizenship, um, even though he didn't want to give up his Indian passport for the longest time. But since India doesn't allow dual citizenship, he had to choose and for his job and for his travel and so on, he felt it was more right to be American, but he celebrated it saying, it's the civic nationalism of America that I celebrate. It's not a nationalism of blood and soil because you know my blood and soil didn't originate here. But the liberal constitutionalism of America, the democratic practices of America, that sort of subscription nationalism we talked about earlier, that's what he celebrated. And I must say that um, uh, that I told the anecdote in my book, but it sort of crystallized in some ways the feeling of it. In many ways, people like him both reaffirm American civic nationalism and constitute the kind of threat to the ethnic identity of America that some who voted for Mr. Trump would like to affirm. And, and people like him in many ways therefore represent both the potential uh, and the danger for American belonging in American nation.
Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in partnership with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to Jaipur Bites wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.